Welcome back, everyone. Jose Nino here with another episode of El Nino Speaks. I'm here today with Pedro Gonzalez, the associate editor of Chronicles Magazine. For those of you who may have listened to some of our previous episodes on the Caudillo cast in the past, today we're just letting everybody know that the podcast is on hiatus. We've been both incredibly busy with our own projects and other work, so we've had to put CaudioCast on hold. That said, it's not officially over, so just stay tuned for any updates on that front. But today I'm just here with Pedro to talk about several things that have been going on over the past month with regards to Conservatism Inc. and its usual hand-wringing against the paleoconservative right. So let's dive right in. Pedro, you've been butting heads with Douglas Murray. He's an interesting character because while he's a neocon writer and public intellectual, he does take some unorthodox positions with regards to immigration. His book, The Strange Death of Europe, is a fantastic read with regards to how it literally exposes the dangers of mass migration and its overall impact on the demographics of Europe and other Western countries. However, like all neocons, when it comes to practical solutions, Murray offers little. And in fact, he actually wrote a hit piece on Substack against you. So could you inform my listeners about the whole context of this piece and why he did that? Yeah, so... Basically, he wrote an article around two mean tweets that I wrote about David Rothschild and Ari Cohen. And the tweets were unrelated. It was, I think there were different, totally different topics. Ari Cohen is just a really nasty lawyer and media personality. And David Rothschild is some tech guy. But they're both particularly nasty and known for just kind of lashing out at people. So I lashed back and called them both ugly <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, did my physiognomy thing. And uh, Murray took that to be crypto anti-Semitism and then wrote an entire article based on that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like he actually believes what he wrote. But fortunately, because, you know, a few years ago, that would have been devastating potentially to someone like me to have someone, an author, a best-selling author accuse you of anti-Semitism from what seems like the respectable circles of conservatism that Douglas Murray has insinuated himself into. He's a neoconservative. He wrote one of his first books was actually called Neoconservatism, Why We Need It. So if you, you know, a few years ago, that that might have actually been really bad for me. But I think a combination of the fact the article was so poorly argued and badly written, that didn't help Murray. And then also I think there's just a it's a new day for people like me in the sense that when someone on the right or the left accuses another person, specifically someone like me, who's, you could say, a populist or a nationalist, whatever, but uh, someone who's outside the mainstream right, but, but still kind of contributing to this new discussion about important issues, when someone like that gets attacked, it's not so easy to knock us out anymore. And that was my experience with the Douglas Murray thing, because the response to his his hit piece on me was, I mean, this is truly organic. I wasn't like behind the scenes asking people to defend me. I was actually really surprised by 
this massive organic pushback on Murray of people telling him that he was way out of line, people making fun of him for writing such a such a ridiculous article. There was even like tons of Jewish people like David Riaboy, Matt Tierman, and David Goldman, who were extremely critical of Murray for, for writing that. It was really remarkable seeing the overwhelmingly negative response that Murray got. And the only people that signal boosted his article were like Lincoln Project types, writers at the Bulwark, writers at the Dispatch, uh, a couple of people in Paul Singer's orbit, and of course, Barry Weiss, because it was published on her Substack. And the only person who, who I was disappointed and not, not necessarily surprised, but kind of like a come on man moment was Dominic Green, who is currently the editor of The Spectator, because I've published several articles at The Spectator that did really well. And I've corresponded with Green cordially. And so to see him share the article and the excerpt that he tweeted out references me by name, to see him dogpile like that was just kind of like, it was disappointing. And I also know that, you know, I'm not going to write at The Spectator anymore. Like that was, that was an editorial statement as far as, as far as I'm concerned. But I mean, I came out stronger at the end. I, for what it's worth as a metric, my Twitter following increased by thousands of, of new followers. I got subscriptions to my newsletter with people leaving notes. Like I'm, I'm, literally just subscribed because I saw what Murray did to you. Same thing with Chronicles. Like we had people signing up for magazine subscriptions, leaving notes like I've canceled my spectator subscription and I'm now a subscriber to Chronicles for the first time in my life because of what Douglas Murray did. So, I mean, it completely backfired and Douglas Murray ended up walking back what he said, you know, because if you read the article, he concludes by saying it's time to defenestrate me, which is a, a very... It's a $5 word for it's time to ruin this person. Yeah, basically. You know, professionally destroyed. He needs to be fired. He needs to be ostracized. His life needs to be destroyed because he is an anti-Semite based on these two tweets. And then when it just blew up in his face, I made a threat. I never apologized, by the way. Like, there's no fucking way I'm apologizing for something that I didn't do. And also, it's just like stupid, just totally absurd. The, whole, the point of these attacks, I think it's important to note this, the point of these attacks is to, you know, A, destroy you and B, force an apology for something that you didn't do. And if they can't destroy you and you apologize, then you essentially destroy yourself. Instead, I initially just kind of watched my friends defend me. And then like a day later, I made a really long Twitter thread about why I thought he did it and what it meant. And it, it that thread got more views than his article. And then he retweeted it and said something like, well, that's a change, kind of like a, that's a change in tone. Like, now that's better. I've given you a spanking. Now I'm going to send you off on your way. Don't say mean things on the internet. And then I retweeted him and, you know, basically told him to stay on his island because there's a reason the British are on an island. And it was interesting because I, I basically kept ratioing him for what that's worth on Twitter. But every time I interacted with him, I ended up ratioing him. It was pretty funny because he has a much bigger following than I do. But I mean, it, it ended well. I got a, a one-up over the Brit. But I've been told he, he genuinely thinks that. Like he actually hysterically reacted to those tweets and then made it like his personal crusade to destroy me. And then when it failed, you know, tried to, to play it cool and save face, but that didn't really work. And now people are trolling him all the time because 
he'll tweet stuff that just shows how totally oblivious he is. He wrote something recently, I think about Joe Rogan, and he said it's shameful that the media takes something out of context and puts the worst possible spin on it. <laughs> and people were like, yeah, self-awareness that's, check. that's terrible. We, I hate it when people do that. Yeah, verbatim, that's what he said. It's when people putting the worst possible spin on things. It's like, yeah, I, that's, you're so right, Douglas. That's terrible. I hate it when people do that. So that's it in a nutshell. And yeah, like I said, I should thank him for increasing my profile and um, for hurting himself in the process. Yeah, it's still really puzzling for me how guys like Murray, who will sometimes go into taboo subjects such as mass migration and demographic shift, will just go back to the usual neocon programming when it comes to attacking people to the right of them. Why do you think they generally always like revert to that meme? Which meme? Uh, of just like attacking the people to the right of them. Like, why do you think like people like Murray who... Well, I mean, because they're ultimately libs. I mean, yeah. I don't care if... I don't care that Murray identifies as a neoconservative or like a disaffected liberal or... It's the same way with like Andrew Sullivan. I don't care that Andrew Sullivan calls himself a, like a conservative with like liberal tendencies. Like, they're just libs. And I mean that in a diminutive term because I think liberal is... Even the word liberal is too much for these people. I think I just refer to them as libs. They're, at heart, always going to see the real enemy on the right. That is where the threat will always truly lurk for them. And so while they might be annoyed by the left, sometimes deeply troubled by the left, the real existential threat is always on the right. And the threat of the left is actually that it's going to provoke a reaction from the right. I'm saying this every Everywhere I go, because it's important to understand that, the real threat of the left is that it will provoke a reaction from the right. That is actually what these people fear above all else. And I think even the immigration argument that Murray makes, and by the way, he has no solution for it. His book, which I have, The Strange Death of Europe, ends with like a whimper. It's pathetic. Yes, it is. It's a whole book about the strange death of Europe. And and then his book is like, well, if if things don't change, we're going to be real sad about it. Some people... Might not go quietly, but, you know, the rest of us, well, shoot, I guess this is how it, that's how it goes. It's fucking pathetic. Sorry, I'm, I'm cussing a lot. It's, I've been on a couple of podcasts where I can I can do that. Now I, I need to turn it off, but... No, go um, ahead. <laughs> Let it all out. It's totally pathetic. It's like it, it ends with a whimper. I wrote a, actually a response to a piece that he wrote in Unheard after he wrote the hit piece about me. And he's basically chastising the American right for being too right-wing. and. In that article, I'm like, look, Brit Bong, Americans are sorting their own stuff out, and the American right has finally grown some teeth. Not in the GOP, I mean like these parent movements that are chasing CRT and, and you know LGBT ideology out of schools. They're finally actually winning some ground, and here you are saying, well, it's too extreme. It's too religious. It's too right-wing. It's a turnoff for people like Bill Maher and Barry Weiss, who you need to win. It's like, no, actually, we don't need you or them. You are not really an ally, and also we're not your audience. And I, I noted that in my piece. It's like that his book ends with a whimper. Americans have decided to fight, and we don't need input from you. But I think even that argument that he makes, going back to the strange death of Europe, I think what is lurking in his mind is that if you know the good liberals don't take back control of their countries, it's going to provoke a horrific reaction from the right. You know, it's like, if we don't do it, like the crazies will kind of a thing. 
And you see that play out with other so-called non-woke libs like Claire Lehman and James Lindsay and all these like intellectual dorkweb people. Their real fear is like James Lindsay, who I ironically, I, I wouldn't say I defended him. I criticized Claire Lehman for attacking James Lindsay when he suggested that there is a kind of cultural and political effort to humiliate, displace, and dispossess white people, which is just, it's irrefutably true. And she retweeted him and said that he was promoting like white genocide conspiracy theories. And it's like, (laughs) the first part of that is correct. The second part is actually conspiracy and like the actual meaning of the word is that phrase is correct, actually. Conspiracy is just an organized, an organized thing that's led by like a coordinated minority to to achieve some goal. So it's like, yeah, actually, that's politics in a nutshell. Yeah, it's like you actually summarize the problem correctly. You just don't even know. It. But anyways, I wrote an article for the Spectator defending him for saying something smart. But anyways, he tweeted recently that the left has been exposed. We know the threat. You know, we're de- we're handling it. But now it's time to turn our attention to the right. It's like to the proto-fascist right. And he says, like, he's going to dedicate his time to that now. Like, they're telling you what they actually think. You, you just need to pay attention to it. Like, they're not really afraid of the left. They're, 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 they're afraid of the left, but they're horrified of the right. They're existentially horrified of the right. All of these intellectual dorkweb people, the classical libs, like, they're standing on the high dung pile of centrism. Yeah, centrism is a totally losing game. And it's like the typical. Girondin meets a Jacobin moment where the, the radicals are ultimately going to take the more moderates to the cleaners in politics. So ultimately, the extremes generally define the middle. Now, in light of like this, this botched cancellation attempt, I could gather that it looks like paleos now appear to be much more anti-fragile against these kinds of attacks than before. Why do you think that is? I think the heart of American populism, whether it knows it or not, is very close to being what you could characterize as paleoconservative. I only use the term occasionally to just help so that, you know, because we need to use terms to describe categories, just a fact of life. And so although I resent the term conservative, I think you could accurately describe me as something like a paleoconservative. Although there, I mean, paleocons are all kind of idiosyncratic. Like Sam Francis was very different from Mel Bradford and Mel Bradford is different from Paul Gottfried. And all these people consider themselves paleocons. But I think the basic aspects of paleoconservatism, like a a respect for, for religion, an acknowledgement that power is a kind of inevitability and that if you want to get anything done, you actually need to capture, retain, and exercise power effectively I think that it's kind of like a, I guess you could say it's like real politics. It's a realization that, that you're dealing with reality instead of an ideal. You know, we refer to America as like a republic or as a democracy. And I think paleocons, depending on who you're talking to, would say that either A, America is not any of those things and it hasn't been for a long time, or B, that all of those things are pretty much on the verge of extinction, our constitutional rights and things like that. And so you go from thinking that to the next logical step, which is that we need to fight fire with fire. And I think the best example of that is these parents' rights movements that are popping up all over the country without any real institutional support. Like the national GOP pays lip service to these parents, but they don't actually care about them. 
yeah. with very few exceptions. Like I think you could, to like Ron DeSantis, like he seems like a smart and decent person. And I think he's actually trying to do some good as much as a Republican can. But like by and large, the GOP does not care about these movements. And in fact, they're horrified by them. They view these people as like angry rubes with pitchforks and they're happy to take their vote and their money, but they don't actually want to shake their hands. But again, these people, I mean, this is what guys like Sam Francis and Paul Gottfried and Mel Bradford were saying. We need, this is exactly the kind of stuff that we need to do and they're doing it. So I think that when you have non-woke libs who are saying, forget attacking me, right? Like Jordan Peterson said this recently, we shouldn't ban CRT that it's impossible to define something like CRT and then take the next step and ban it. It's like, no, we can actually, we, we can, we can define and ban it. And I think it, like, well, what's your definition of it? It's such a stupid argument. Like let's settle for good enough. Okay. <laughs> uh, curriculum that teaches kids that America is evil. Uh, curriculum that teaches kids that, that America is founded on horrific institutional racism or something like that that teaches America is singularly responsible for the worst crimes against humanity. Let's just call that critical race theory. And I don't, I don't care what some law professor who specializes in, in like, you know, actual critical race theory at Yale thinks about what I've just said. Like, I don't care. You're not going to brainwash my kids. I'm going to crush you. I'm going to make you unemployed and keep you away from my children. So I think when like normal people hear Jordan Peterson, like, you know, after popping a couple of benzos saying, well, you can't ban CRT. That's just, you got to let it, like, you got to let the marketplace of ideas figure it out. Yeah. Most normal people, I think would be like, thanks, JP. You know, I appreciate the, the contributions that you've made, but we'll, we'll take it from here. To be honest, I would even go further as to say that if the right is serious about using political power, especially like at the state level, these governors that effectively have a lot of power over the universities, they should try to cut as much funding and punish like any professors that push leftist junk science, like propaganda, whether it's CRT and all of that, if they're actually serious about imposing their will and making sure that their ideas are respected throughout institutions, they, they would be categorically firing these people, defunding their departments and all of that. And this idea that you just can't ban it or, use like political power to punish it is just like dumb. But that's why one of the big issues I have with a lot of classical liberals and centrists is they fall into what Amy Therese calls the perpetual discourse trap, where all of their action is just centered around like debate, but no concrete political action, whether it's like banning some type of permutation of leftist ideology, or at least like defunding these institutions and like firing people that propagate these ideas. And you're not going to win a political battle by just debate alone. In fact, I had like a political mentor who said it best that when you debate, your enemies legislate. And yeah, like debate is good and all, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. And you have to ultimately legislate if you want to see your political vision coming to fruition. Yeah. And you see conservatives fall into this trap all the time. It's easy to do it, right? Because it often happens in like a formal setting in front of an audience, whether it's on TV or a live audience. These debate like for CRT will often begin with either a moderator or a CRT advocate establishing what CRT is. Like it's a legal theory. And then the conservative will attempt to begin debating 
within that framework. And that's already like you've already lost, basically. You've already given up something important. And that is that you've allowed your opponent to define what it is you're debating. And it's ultimately, no matter what you say, like it's futile. So, yeah, which is why I think the debates that are fruitful are probably debates between people on the right and like the so called non woke lives. And I think those are only fruitful for probably discrediting them and showing people who they truly are. But, you know, like me or anybody like me debating someone on CNN who is like a CRT advocate or like CRT law scholar, that's probably not going to change anyone's mind. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. How, I don't know how far. I've never heard of somebody who, like, you know, a religious CNN viewer watches a debate and then says, you know, I was really convinced by the right wing guy. If anything, when someone does a good job in that debate, it serves to motivate and energize the people that already agree with you. So it's good in that sense, but ultimately it's debates don't really move the needle for people that are, you know, really committed to something like CRT. So yeah, I think it's a kind of psyop that we've told ourselves that if we just have more debates, then ideas will win on their merit. And it's like, no, they, they won't win on their merit. They win because parents will go to school board meetings and talk about how a teacher locked their child in a closet. This is actually something that happened. Not It wasn't a closet, but a teacher at a school locked a student in a room by themselves because they weren't wearing a mask. Or teachers that will push gender ideology on kids or teachers that will tell white students that they're, you know, that there's something wrong with them and that they're privileged and stuff like that. Like parents will take that stuff, go to a school board meeting and then go to war with the board over that. Like that actually moves the needle and that's not debating. They've skipped the debate and they've gone straight to making demands (laughs) and demands and policy changes. And that's why they're so effective. And I think that's why that's actually probably why like libs and even non-woke libs want to have more debates. Like, cause it's like, we got to pump the brakes here, right? We, we're going too fast. We got to pump the brakes. Let's have some, some debates about uh, how far we should go. Jordan Peterson did this today or not today, three days ago with the Canadian truckers. He published a video on YouTube and you have to watch it once or twice to see what he's doing. But it, once you see it, it's, it's very clear He's saying that reasonable protesters will go home and the more extreme elements who will be difficult to manage will remain and continue protesting. Wow. Yeah. It's difficult to see how it's not bad faith because Peterson's not dumb. And those are the terms he uses. More reasonable people will go home, but the more extreme people who will be difficult to manage will remain. So it's like, did Peterson just say everyone who doesn't go home when he says it's time to go home is an extremist? Yeah, it looks like it. All these people, all these non-woke libs, they'll all do that at critical moments, whether it's with regards to CRT or the anti-COVID mandate stuff, like they will always stab you in the back at the most important moments. So now let's move on to some of your latest works at Chronicles. You've been on a tear lately, like as usual. So you had one piece titled Texas Governor Abbott fumbles on border security, where you expose Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star project. And what ways is Abbott dropping the ball with regards to immigration? And to be clear about Peterson, I don't know if I was clear enough. I don't know if he was acting in bad faith, but it's just 
frustrating that because he's one of the people that I've said, you know, I think Claire Lehman at Quillet is like an idiot. And Douglas Murray is not as serious as people think he is. But JP seems like someone who tries to do good and is just kind of kind of lost. Like he literally needs God. So I, I have no idea if he's acting in bad faith or if he's just, if that's actually what he thinks and he has no idea of like of the implications of what he's saying. But anyway, uh, yeah, with Abbott, I wrote an article about Operation Lone Star, which he launched to basically build the wall without any assistance from the federal government. This is Texas building the wall and securing its section of the U.S. border with Mexico. In theory, that sounds great. And I think governors actually should do that. However, Abbott has horrifically mismanaged Operation Lone Star. And most of the media coverage about his mismanagement comes from the left. The Army Times is left-leaning. It's not objective. It's not even right-wing. I wouldn't even call it centrist. It's left-leaning. And again, I, I don't care that it's called the Army Times. I don't care that it's an official publication of the U.S. military. It's left-wing. And you can see this when you read it, and you can very easily pick up on the fact that the Army Times, which is doing, has been doing the most, I think, the most coverage of how badly Operation Lone Star is going, they're essentially rooting for it to fail. All of the bad things that that are happening down on the border that range from soldiers not having the equipment they need, people not getting paid correctly or on time, people who have kids on the way or have kids with disabilities not being given time to go home and and you know do what they need to do with their families, suicides, drug use among national guardsmen, lack of equipment, you know, people have to share like body armor and stuff down there and they're they're being shot at. All of this stuff is being used by the media to basically not just discredit Operation Lone Star, but discredit the very idea of using the military to secure the southern border. And so I decided I'm going to write an article that is critical of Lone Star and Abbott, or I should say critical of Abbott, not Lone Star, but from the right. So in other words, I believe in what the mission wants to do. I just obviously acknowledge that Abbott has done a terrible job executing it. And so I, I interviewed people who are actively involved with Lone Star or were in the beginning, and I reported their perspective, and it's the same as mine, essentially. And this is quite common. You just, of course, you don't get this through left-wing media. And the perspective is that we support Lone Star. We, we support securing our border with Mexico. We just are angry about how Abbott is handling it. And the consensus from the people that I spoke to is that it's just a publicity stunt for Abbott. And I, I note this in my article, he only launched it because Don Huffines and Alan West had suggested doing the same. 100%. The Texas Tribune specifically says, and they're right about this, that they are a little liberal publication, but liberal publications do publish like some of the best critiques of GOP politics, and they deserve to be criticized. But the Tribune noted that Abbott only launched this whole thing, building the wall, after Huffines said that if he became governor, he would do it. And the point that I make is, is that he's, he did it as a publicity stunt, and therefore he's doing it in a half-assed way. And it's actually worsening the problem of illegal immigration because it's allowing people to bypass the Remain in Mexico policy that Biden reinstated because now they're being picked up by people on the border and they're able to basically get processed faster within the United States and then be released into the country. But if you, you, know, if you see Abbott on TV and stuff, everything's fine. 
It's not. 100% agreed on your point in regards to the publicity stunt being propelled by the pressure that Don Huffines and Alan West have placed on Abbott in regards to immigration, because really this is a good lesson for the politically minded here who want to get involved in politics that if you have a strong primary opponent against a relatively flimsy incumbent, oftentimes when they go to the right of the incumbent, the incumbent will then start making gestures towards more extreme policies, if you will. But often it's generally speaking, in my view, a lot of performance art because that's how Abbott and a lot of his establishment ilk goes. But the one thing I am interested about this gubernatorial primary is that it could potentially go to a runoff, which is a first in Texas politics because it's always assumed that the um, Republican incumbent will not face like a credible primary challenger, but things are changing now. And it's a good thing because the issues that Huffines and West are running on like immigration are stuff that the Texas GOP has traditionally ignored. And that's always a good thing that people from the grassroots are bringing those issues to the fore. Well, on that note, let's put a bookmark in this conversation. Pedro, feel free to plug your content. Yeah, you can follow me at contra.substack.com. That's my newsletter. And most of my writing is at chroniclesmagazine.org. Contra is a weekly newsletter. And I also publish a column and a podcast there. So Great stuff, Pedro. I highly recommend all my listeners follow Pedro's stuff. It's absolutely thought-provoking and just goes against the grain. Again, to my wonderful listeners, I appreciate your attention and I hope you tune in to another episode of El Nino Speaks. And with that, El Nino has spoken.